This is brainwaves. This is brainwaves. This is brainwaves. My teacher wishes to brainwaves. Catch some brainwaves. This is a podcast. The podcast about teaching. I mean the best podcast. This is my favorite podcast. Brainwaves. You're listening to Brainwaves. Wait, so is it Brainwaves podcast? The Brainwaves. Po- Wait, no, the Brainwaves podcast. Brainwaves. Whoever you are, wherever you are, and whenever it is, you are catching some brainwaves. The podcast aimed at making us all more informed, inspired, and connected educators. Coming to you from almost always sunny Longmont, Colorado, I'm Susie Evans here with Shane Saeed, and not sure how it's December already. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It's totally crazy. Can't stop this month from coming, I guess. And we have a holiday gift for you today. We had the honor of recording with Jeff Crawl, professor and author of one of our favorite PD books, Necessary Conditions. Yes, we are so excited. And Jeff was also a presenter at our annual Teach to Reach conference back in August. He's also an experienced educator, coach, blogger, author, speaker, professional developer, student, and mathematician. Jeff is also a PhD student at the University of Wyoming for math education, which he's almost finished with. So we are so excited for you, Jeff. And he lives in Fort Collins with his wife, two kids, two cats, and four chickens. <laughs> His website is emergentmath.com, where he shares a plethora of resources. And he's also on Twitter, too, if you want to check that out, or I guess X as we is known now. Mm -hmm. Um, At Jeff, G-E-O-F-F, crawl, K-R-A-L-L. All right, let's warm up our math muscles and dive in. But if you are not a math teacher, do not tune out. Please do not tune out, because Jeff speaks to instructional practices that can be used in any content area. Right, Jeff Crawl. Welcome to Brainwaves. Hello, hello. I'm excited to be here. Oh, thanks so much for your time today. So we always joke on this show, there's usually a mic drop quote that we're either going to make a t-shirt out of or some, or we're going to tattoo on our arm or something like that. <laughs> this time for me, it's one from your book. And it was this one, thinking back to my own teaching career, nearly all of it involved me doing math at students or students doing math back at me. Rarely did we do math together. And I just got all the goosebumps when I read that. Can you tell us about this thinking and what you mean specifically because to us, this idea of learning together is always the goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, math is typically taught, and I think most of us experience this, by sort of replication, where the teacher is sort of the primary authority, and it's really up to the students to watch what I do as the teacher and replicate that. Um, And what that really does is present, I mean, it first of all presents sort of a negative self-view from students in terms of who has mathematical authority. It suggests that math um, is is sort of bestowed on high in these stone tablets from the teacher and the teacher alone. Um, So my goal as as an instructional coach and as a teacher is to um, provide students opportunities to do math together. So what that can mean is is a lot of different things. So one example might be to play mathematical games with students. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And this could be for elementary, middle school, or secondary. There's plenty of games that have uh, that utilize a depth of mathematical thinking where teachers and students can can participate. Um, so I know it's hard to do every day, but once in a while, once a week, maybe every other week is to actually play a mathematical game with students and like as a participant. Um, another example might be, uh, you know, there's a common routine that a lot of folks have been using recently called which one doesn't belong. Oh, where, yes. Yeah. Where, where essentially, uh, you know, essentially students have to identify one of four different things as a an artifact that doesn't belong and they could be shapes and numbers and they could use any kind of reasoning they want. Um, I encourage teachers to use that as well as have students create their own which one doesn't belong. And so let students create four different shapes, four mm -hmm. different numbers, four different graphs and see if I as the teacher or we as the class can can sort of figure out which one doesn't belong and why. Uh, so actually have students create those. Yeah, I um, love that. Yeah, and, and I guess I'll give one last example. This is sort of a, a mesh between those two things in terms of sort of gamifying the math classroom and having students create stuff. Um, so as a geometry teacher, so I have a background, um, my teaching background is primarily in secondary uh, school, and most of that was spent in geometry. And one of the things I would have students do, I never really liked vocabulary units um, or, or like sections of vocabulary because it was very memorization heavy and very, very specific memorization heavy. Like you have to remember these certain words and put them in the correct order. Um, otherwise, students get marked wrong. Uh, so what I actually had students do, do y'all know the game Taboo? Oh, yes. yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So oh, I love that game. Yeah. So it's, that was one of my favorite games uh, growing up. And essentially what the what the game involves is you have to get your partner to say a certain word, but you can't use these five other words to do so. Um, so you get a card and it's and and there's there's a, a sort of a target word and then you're not allowed to say these other words. So I actually had students come up with their own version of taboo for geometry terms. So, for example, if the term is, oh, I don't know, radius or something like that, um, students would create that the card for radius and then they would create the five words that we're not allowed to say. And sort of by doing that, students are able to. Um, you know, they have to sort of define the word without defining the word. So they can't use, you know, it's up to the student to decide what they, what we can't use, but, you know, they'll typically use student or um, they'll typically use circle or diameter or pi or half or something like that or center maybe. Um, and then once we have this card set created of all these, you know, wonderful geometry terms, I as the teacher and we as the class can kind of play taboo with students. And so that's kind of an example of doing math with students that imbues mathematical authority on them. That's incredible. And what a great way to encompass uh, not only like critical thinking, but also depth because the students are the ones coming up with everything. I remember I did like heads up with vocab terms yeah, and yeah. math. But that is like the next step up. <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's great. It was it was a lot of fun. And then we sort of <laughs> the nice thing is we kind of have that the rest of the year. And so if we ever need to review geometry terms or whatnot, we have a nice card set ready to roll. And it's already made. Yeah, yeah. And, and I and I didn't create it. Um, <laughs> That's so, great. Yeah. 
It's a, it's a teacher life hack in terms of critical thinking, depth of knowledge, and taking something off of your plate for your plan. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then I'll take that any day of the week. Uh. <laughs> well, incredible. So a lot of what you talked about was really breaking barriers in terms of uh, taking away the hierarchical thinking around math, right? The teacher is not the one uh, giving the students the information. You all are a community of learners discovering it together. And a lot of that is it really resonated with me in terms of um, your work in your book, uh, Necessary Conditions Around Creating Academic Safety in the Classroom, which is critical to cultivating that safe environment where learning can actually happen, where math is done together. Uh, will you tell our listeners a little bit more about the three strategies that you outlined in your book for creating academic safety? And they are uh, from speed to thoughtfulness, mm -hmm. from correctness to effort, and from grades to demonstrations of knowledge as ways to support that academic safety. Yeah. So as as far as um, speed uh, to thoughtfulness, uh, again, I, th I think a lot of us have these memories of of doing math and having to do it very quickly. Um, I don't know if y'all participated in the mad minutes. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And it was yeah, it created so much anxiety for exactly. me. Exactly. And, and yeah, and I'm going to, I'm going to guess that, that you can probably remember specific moments, um, of anxiety, yeah. um, to some even humiliation. Um, Absolutely. and, and it's, it's remarkable. And I, I often, um, I'm sure this is true in every discipline, but I often, I, I've come to really believe that there's really something different about math in terms of the anxiety, the trauma, the, um, uh, you know, just the, the, the dull edge with which it cuts against students sort of academic well-being. Um, and I think speed can be a big part of that. Um, so I sort of implore teachers that um, it's not really essential how quickly students arrive at an answer. Um, only that they are deeply engaged in the in the process to do so, and so, and so, yeah, that that means um, rethinking things like timed tests or um, the amount, uh, sort of the volume of of problems that students are asked to do in a given in a given time frame. Um, and then from correctness to effort, it, I actually just got done uh, grading some exams for my college algebra class that I'm teaching. <laughs> um, and one of the things we're going over is quadratics and parabolas and, and not to get too into the weeds, but with those types of problems, whether it's like factoring quadratics, applying a quadratic formula, it's really easy to make, uh, what I'd call a, a clerical error, mm -hmm. you know, missing a negative sign, accidentally adding when you should have subtracted something like that. It's, it's honestly the kind of error that I make, you know, multiple times a day. <laughs> Um, and so rather than counting the problem wrong, um, I'm able to just make a note and go ahead and give full credit. I'm not even partial credit, just give full credit for the problem. Cause I, I want to assess students on their mathematical thinking, not so much how they can sort of, you know, uh, jump over the little tiny steps along the way. And that's what I want their sort of score to reflect. And then finally, from numbers to a demonstration of knowledge, this is, this is kind of a personal passion project of mine and is uh, aligned with my doctoral research a little bit. Um, which again, I don't want to get too into the weeds, but <laughs> that's okay. Uh, <laughs> my doctoral research, um, uh, which I am wrapping up now, you know, fingers crossed, knock on wood, the whole thing. Exciting. Nice. Uh, <laughs> um, it, it involves uh, middle school teachers using mathematical portfolios as their primary form of assessment rather than just traditional tests. And then through this experience, 
can we as a learning community and can the teachers um, better identify what students know and can do with mathematics um, in a way that is less, um, again, anxiety producing? Um, uh, is it a better reflection of what students actually know rather than what they can reproduce on a timed test? And so as much as possible, and again, it's really difficult to do every day, every every you know unit, um, but to think about like how can we assess students and provide students the opportunity to demonstrate what they know rather in, in a way that doesn't simply result in a numerical grade. So mm -hmm. can they give a presentation? Can we uh, do some peer assessment? Can we, uh, can students self-assess themselves? I mean, honestly, uh, through the research um, that I've been doing, a lot of the teachers have been really resonating with this, uh, you know, this prompt at the end of every unit they've been asking, which is simply, how have you developed as a mathematician? Um, and students are really great at identifying things that they have struggled with and have overcome, uh, but then have also, you know, areas where they need to continue to improve. And, and students are as, you know, they don't need a grade to know where they need improvement in a lot of cases. They don't need a, new, a number. So uh, can we provide these opportunities to for students to reflect, demonstrate, and do stuff with math that isn't simply, you know, the number um, at the end of a test, at the end of a unit. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's shifting from, from grade-based to learn, to actual learning. And yeah. metacognition, yeah. The metacognition, which we've been talking about in the last two episodes. So this is just perfect timing for this recording, actually. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, I, I apologize for getting, a, in, in, getting into it, but one of the research oh, questions no, is, is... Never uh, apologize for getting no into apologies it. <laughs> Sorry, I, I didn't, I didn't, I, on my glasses, I, I wanted to put on my nerd glasses, but I don't have them with me. Oh, that's okay. Uh, I but, mean... Yeah, this is incredible. Well, one of the research questions is about metacognition and can students through this, like what evidence do we see of student metacognition throughout this process? And it's remarkable to see, um, you know, seventh grade students in, in one class case really just authentically reflect on where they're struggling. And in some cases, it's about a particular mathematical concept or about content. And another case, it was a student reflected that they needed to just get up and walk around and get a drink of water and then was able so to sort important. of re-engage in the task. And um, so how, yeah. So again, how can we provide these opportunities for students to, to reflect, you know, on, you know, thinking about their thinking um, and reflect on their own growth as a mathematician? Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I, I just love that little point right there where, so of course you need to get up and stretch. And as an adult, we would never be penalized for getting up and stretching. <laughs> I mean, exactly. Maybe if it's a super important meeting. We, we shouldn't do that. But that kind of awareness, why would we ever penalize a student for having that awareness or building that awareness? That's, that's incredible. Yeah. So yeah. can we switch to facilitation for just a hot minute here sure. on page, on page 180 also of your book? I just have all these, these goosebump moments. You speak to letting go for a bit. And there were two bullet points in particular that resonated with me. And one was don't jump in too quickly. And the other was when you help offer strategies and not solutions. And I just loved that. What do you see as the power of letting go and how might we help teachers feel a little less scratchy about this? 
Yeah. Um, so the book was written with secondary teachers in mind. And I, and I say this as a former secondary teacher, and I don't, at the risk of painting with too broad a brush, I know that a lot of us secondary teachers really struggle with wait time. I know that uh, a lot of elementary teachers are, are much, are, in my experience, really, uh, uh, really effective at utilizing wait time. But I know that as a teacher myself, and I know that a lot of, a lot of the teachers I support in middle and high school really struggle with that. So it's kind of an imploration for teachers to just, just take a beat. Um, you don't need to fill every moment of every classroom with your voice. Um, allow students to have <laughs> say that one more time. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. That was incredible. And, and that's that's a tough thing for a lot of teachers, a lot of secondary teachers. Again, at the risk of painting with too broad a brush, it's a lot of that's a real challenge for a lot of teachers that they just need to fill fill the the the, the studio space with their with their voice. So. To take a minute to let students actually think about the problem before you, you know, start walking them through it. Um, and, and sometimes that can be a minute, sometimes it can be two minutes. And that's really where the difficult, that's where the sort of art of, of teaching really comes into play is sort of knowing, you know, what is the, the right time to, to jump in. Uh, but then, yeah, in terms of, um, offering strategies and not solutions, um, you know, a lot of times teachers may jump to, uh, you know, the formula or something like that. Like, let's just, if you don't get it within the first, you know, six seconds of me waiting, even six seconds is kind of a long wait time for some, some folks. Um, it's like, here's the formula, here's how to do it and, and let's go. Uh, whereas instead you, I would encourage teachers to think about offering potential strategies. So some mathematical strategies like, utilizing some prior knowledge or, you know, going back through notes. If you have them drawing a picture. Um, one thing that I uh, I've seen teachers use really effectively are hint cards oh. so rather than, you know, uh, so letting students get kicked off on a problem uh, and they're working through the problem. Um, you know, some students will just forge ahead and they'll be ready to roll and you'll naturally have a handful of students um, that you know, aren't exactly sure either how to get started or how to get unstuck out of a certain situation. Mm -hmm. And what a, a lot of teachers might do is sort of like take a big class timeout and interrupt everyone's momentum. But what I've seen other teachers do that's really effective is just have little cards, like little, you know, uh, it doesn't even have to be the size of an index card. It could be half an index card. It could be a sticky note. Um, and just, you know, have a, a little note on there, maybe with some suggestions of how to get unstuck in this particular problem. So, you know, it could be brilliant. anything from like, yeah, draw a picture of this situation. Um, what's the, you know, I don't know, what's the unknown or what's the variable in this scenario? Or what, what do we know about this problem? What do we need to know about this problem? Um, so to sort of help students get unstuck through their, their own um, intuition and their own ingenuity, rather than just jumping into, you know, what the correct answer is. Well, wow. that is, I mean, it just reminds me of one of the anecdotes that you tell at the very beginning of your book about sitting in the back of the uh, classroom and all the students were working through the problem. But the first thing that they did was like, what are all the things that they know about the problem? And what are all the things that they need to know about uh -huh. the problem? Yeah. And how that in itself is a scaffold, right? Yeah. So one of the things, so 
uh, well, a lot of like forward thinking or teachers that want to be student centered uh, really make a good go at it. One of the things that I've seen folks struggle with, with a lot of inquiry based learning, project based learning is, is, yeah, that moment when you say, OK, go um, to students, you launch them into the problem. And a lot of times you'll have the entire class, 25 students, you know, looking at you like, I have no idea how <laughs> yes. to get going. Total paralysis. <laughs> yeah, total paralysis. That's a great way of putting it, total paralysis. And so one of the sort of like strategies that I used in my class that I found super effective was the problem solving framework that's in the book, where basically every time you have a problem that is, you know, maybe a little bit complex, it asks students to define the problem. So what is what is the problem asking? Say it in their own words. Identify what do they know about the problem. Maybe it's information in the problem. Maybe it's past work that they've that they can draw on. What do they need to know in order to solve it? Maybe it's you know a, an unknown. Maybe it's additional information. And then again, before we launch into the problem, I want uh, to have every student have a strategy or two that they can launch into. And again, maybe the strategy is to just draw a picture of the scenario. Maybe it's to underline certain um, important pieces of information, but that way every single student has that framework. And if they're working in groups, they're welcome to share. Um, uh, they have that framework. So when, when I do say go, um, even if it's just moving a little bit forward, they have one or maybe even two uh immediate action items that they can at least start to sort of fall forward into the problem. That is, and, and I right there also just think about other content and mm -hmm. immediately I think about say writing right mm -hmm. there, because often we see a writing prompt be projected and it's also total paralysis yeah. and they don't know where to start. And that's where I hope teachers didn't tune out when we said we have a math guest on today because it truly applies. It's content agnostic. It mm -hmm. is okay. How, let's use a thinking map maybe here to get started on this writing prompt. What do we know? What kind of thinking are we being asked to do? And that's how we can get started. Yeah. And just as like a little side, a little a small little anecdote with regards to that know and need to know process. Mm -hmm. So my teaching background as a high school teacher is in Texas, where I don't know if your listeners know Texas, uh, we love our standardized exams there. Um, we do in Colorado. Yeah, I, I mean, I know, <laughs> I don't want to say that we like initiated it as Texans, but it is really where a lot of, you know, uh, anyway, there, there was a big emphasis on, on standardized exams, which, which, as I've sort of mentioned, not the biggest fan of. However, I did notice as I was proctoring once, um, one of my students without me prompting, cause it's very serious in Texas. I'm not allowed to prompt. I'm not allowed to help. I'm not allowed to help them with their calculator. If their calculator dies, they need to be able to do it. Um, but I noticed one of my students in a, in a sort of a mixed class, you know, mixed proctor situation. One of my students was working through one of the standardized test problems and she had made a little tiny no and need to know column on her scratch paper. And I'm, you know, I'm not allowed to like say anything because I'm proctoring and I'll get, You're I'll get celebrating it. on the inside. But, but like, I'm like, like she's, I was just thrilled that she was applying the strategy that we've used multiple times throughout the semester, even in this sort of non, you know, this sort of inauthentic scenario, but this, but she was able to, you know, that was a strategy that she now has that she might be able to apply to, you know, maybe to other math, 
courses, but maybe to other courses as well. Maybe, you know, maybe other disciplines, she'll have that sort of tool in her toolbox. So that was, that was kind of like a small, that was the, that was the best moment I've ever had proctoring oh, a standardized oh, that's exam. That's a huge win. That's like, a huge win. I've definitely felt that when proctoring CMAS. And like you said, you can't say or speak mm-hmm. or right. like give any emotion, but when you walk around and you go, well, they're using the things yes. that we yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Maybe an air high five. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sort of a mental, like I'm trying to mind, yeah, like a mental high five. No. It's <laughs> great. Well, and a lot of what you said, Jeff, resonated uh, with me in terms of like, I know Susie and I do a, t- a lot of coaching and uh, mm-hmm. we have to, you, you have to be really aware of not stepping into the consulting mode in terms mm-hmm. of providing immediate solutions and instead uh, shift into coaching mm-hmm. and provide questions to help get to uh, a means to an end or to provide a strategy, right? Because yeah. you want the thinking to be on who you're working with, right. and with, with students. Right, 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 right. And so with that, knowing that you're giving them strategies and a lot of your content is all on uh, collaboration and group work, group work, excuse Mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the best ways for students to learn and grow together. Often there are a lot of barriers to group work in the classroom, but let's say that a teacher has done all the work to do and create an academically safe space Mm -hmm. and wants to begin supporting effective group work. What are some ideas and strategies you might have for them or practices that you would suggest using Mm -hmm. to help students be able to work with one another rather just uh-huh. like in proximity to one another. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. No, that's, that's actually a great way of putting it because yeah, like early in my career, in my teaching career, one of the state, one of the mistakes I certainly made was, and I think a lot of teachers do this. A lot of stu- teachers that want to be really student centered is we just sort of like assume that students know how to, and will naturally want to collaborate. Uh, yes. Like we, like we just assume that that's a thing that they know how to do when yes. In truth, like even a, like adults barely know how to collaborate. Yes, it's not an innate <laughs> it, it, skill. It is not. It's, it's not. not innate all the time. No, it really is a. Ne- it's one of those soft skills that isn't really. It, it's required in life, mm-hmm. and it's required in work as an adult, and we treat it as a as a side hustle kind of thing, but it's really <laughs> necessary. Yeah, and so. Um... So yeah, rather than just assuming that every student in in the classroom knows just like immediately how to like, you know, design, you know, uh, break into like design groups or something like that, um, that actually needs to be taught. Um, like the the gr- sort of group process needs to be something that is scaffolded just as much as as you know various math problems. Mm-hmm. And so th- there's a, a few different strategies that that I've seen be effective. Um, sort of the most uh, baseline to maybe at least start with of teachers are are sort of um, not seeing productive group work or not sort of sure how it's going is to consider having students break up into group roles, um, maybe some identifying some roles. And there's some examples in the book, um, uh, but they could be things, you know, it could be very simple things like um, someone that presents to the rest of the class. Um, actually, I, wouldn't, I don't know that I would call that simple, but uh, other things like, you know, obtaining supplies. And, and I know that's not super mathematically rigorous, but it does sort of scaffold that idea that everyone has something to contribute to the group. Mm-hmm. And I sort of recommend having teachers, you know, mix up groups every now and again, um, you know, and sort of start with those group roles. And, and eventually it's, you know, with scaffolding and with support and with, 
with teaching is, you know, maybe you can sort of grow out of those roles. And I, I certainly have seen sort of both scenarios where students have sort of taken on the work of uh, collaboration and have sort of like grown out of the need for the roles and others where they sort of like need them and almost kind of like, like them, uh, uh, they to might, have them. Yeah. Yeah. And, they might and, need that structure. Yeah. And then to also consider, uh, having students, ref, you know, reflect at the end of every class period or at the end of every group session. How did I contribute to my group today? Um, how can I contribute better tomorrow? So after the group work, um, maybe consider having students do a little bit of reflecting on how do they contribute, um, or even at the beginning of a group collaboration session, how will I, as a, as a group member, contribute to the rest of my group today and maybe setting some goals around there? So um, it, it is it is difficult. Um, it's difficult for adults. And so it's going to be difficult for students, too. But that is a skill that needs to be taught just as much as, I don't know, applying the quadratic formula or something like that. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. We could literally talk to you all day. Again, everyone, <laughs> the book is Necessary Conditions by Jeff Crawl. And Jeff, what I hear from you throughout everything we talked about today is reflecting and metacognition mm -hmm. always, it, whether it's math or again, or writing or social studies or whatever it is, metacognition to help students drive their own learning and, and set goals for themselves and mm -hmm. become better learners, lifelong learners. Yeah. What, and I, maybe I'll just sort of, uh, wrap, I, like a lot of the, the prompts and, um, uh, you know, a lot of the emphasis throughout the book is on how do we get students to view themselves as mathematicians? Mm -hmm. And that's why I really like those metacognitive prompts where how have you grown as a mathematician, not, not as a, not as a student of Mr. Crawls, not as a, a student of, you know, so-and-so high school, not as a, not as a geometry student, even how, how as a geometer or how as a mathematician, you are a mathematician. How have you demonstrated that? How will you continue to develop as a mathematician? That's kind of the, the vocabulary and the emphasis that I, I try to get, um, teachers and students to, to start thinking about is how can students be, um, see themselves as mathematicians. Yeah. We want to create like That's the next great. generation to not say, I'm just not a math person. I'm not exactly. a math person. I don't want to hear that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's so... I've, heard, I've heard it enough in my life. Oh, so many people, <laughs> sure. so many people say that. And I was guilty of it until I, was, I actually no, started no. learning how to teach math. And then I was mm -hmm. like, oh, it all makes sense now. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate yeah. you so much. And we, if anyone uh, saw Jeff, he was here in August at the teach to reach conference. It was fantastic. His sessions were amazing. And I believe he's coming back to the district in May too. So yay. Keep your eyes out yes. for that opportunity. <laughs> yes, indeed. Looking forward to it. Just a, a short drive down 287. Excellent. <laughs> Well, depending on traffic. Depending on traffic. Short <laughs> is a relative term, yes. <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. We appreciate your insight and your knowledge and your thoughtfulness. So thank you so much. That was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Dizzy. Uh, thanks, Shane. All right. So let's wrap up for today. There are so many things to take away, but I have two main ones. 
first, I think we all need to stop saying I'm not a math person. And that goes for me. I totally said that to my students in fourth grade, especially when we're in front of our students. And I know that I, I used to do this in order to create camaraderie and show that, you know, they can still do hard things, but maybe we could reframe it as, you know, this feels hard now, but we're going to work through this together and have a better understanding. Yes. And then second is that something I believe deep in my bones. I wrote about it in my book. And anyone who's been in a Be the Flame PD with me knows that collaborative behaviors need to be explicitly taught, modeled, practiced, and reflected on continuously to help support that effective collaboration in any context, not just in math. What about you, Susie? All of that and learning together involves starting with academic safety, as Jeff mentioned, and the notion that we aren't the only experts in the room. I think that is something we need to just continuously model. Our students bring so much knowledge to the table and how we're we're facilitating, how we're asking questions, how we're creating opportunities for think time are all how we honor that background knowledge and start learning together. Exactly. Well, as always, thank you so much for tuning in today. Feel free to reach out to us or tag us on Twitter or X with your stories about learning and instruction. And thank you to our high school intern, Zoe Ebert, for her hard work in the editing room.